Zechariah chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1, and let's read from verse 1 this evening. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, and the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet under Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and of Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. And came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And let's open with a word of prayer this evening. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come together and to spend time around your word. Lord, I pray that this evening as we continue our study in the book of Haggai, that, Lord, you give me wisdom, uh, guidance, and strength. That, Lord, it be your words and your thoughts this evening. Lord, you take your word and apply it to each of our hearts and lives this evening. May we, Lord, leave this place knowing that we've been in your presence. May we leave this place um, rejoicing, Lord, and, Lord, with um, something gleaned from your word this evening. May you just undertake now. And may you bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last time, a couple of weeks ago, we started looking at the book of Haggai. And we, we looked at an introduction to the book. We saw that Haggai's prophecy is uh, written to the, the Jews who have returned from exile. And they've come back to build the temple there in Jerusalem. Of course, they came back under the decree of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Okay, and they returned to Jerusalem and they quickly laid the foundations there in Jerusalem for the temple. And the year was 536 BC when they'd finished the Temple Mount, when they'd finished laying the foundations. But then opposition arose and the people became discouraged and so they stopped working on the temple. And the temple laid uh, dormant, if you like, for 16 long years. Nothing happened, nothing took place. And it's then in 520 BC that Haggai comes on the scene. And he's sent by the Lord with the the purpose of encouraging the people, of stirring the people up to once again begin the work of the Lord. To get them focused on what needs to be done. To get them focused on the temple. Verse 1 tells us that this uh, particular message was directed to the the leaders of the people. It says there in verse 1, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying... We looked at these two characters last time. We saw that Zerubbabel is in the the kingly line. Okay, So he's, he's a descendant of King David, and therefore he's heir to the throne, if you like, and he is the governor. Okay, He's the governor in Israel. At this time, and Joshua, the high priest. And so we have both the civil leader and we have the religious leader addressed here. And we saw the reason is because they are responsible for taking the lead. They're responsible for leading the people in getting back to doing the work of the Lord. With verse 2, Haggai now begins to deliver his first message from the Lord. 
We said that there's four messages here in this book. The first of these is in chapter 1, and the other three are found in chapter 2. So this evening we're only going to start to look at Haggai's first message here in chapter 1. It's a message of rebuke and also exhortation to put him first. And so firstly this evening we see that the excuse of the people. We see the excuse of the people. Look at me in verse 2. It says, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now Haggai's message begins here by addressing uh, the lame excuse, if you like, for the people not finishing the work. Their lame excuse as to why they'd stopped building the temple. Why it was that it had laid dormant for 16 years. You know, their excuse basically was that it's not the right time to build the house of the Lord. You know, they even made it sound spiritual. You know, they said it's not God's timing. It's not the Lord's timing. But you know, it was just that. It was an excuse. It was an excuse to justify their inaction. It was an excuse to justify their sin. Now, it's important here that we notice, you know, that it's not Haggai who's accusing them here. It's not Haggai who's rebuking them for this excuse. It's the Lord of hosts. It says at the start of verse 2, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts. It's the Lord of hosts. It's God who is rebuking them here for this excuse. Haggai is just relaying the words of the Lord. God, the Lord of hosts, you know, he was well aware of their hearts. He was well aware of their, their rationalization. He's well aware of why they weren't finishing the work. And this title here, Lord of Hosts, is used by Haggai several times throughout the book. And it's used over 80 times in the three post-exile books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. This is the, the name that they constantly use for God, the Lord of Hosts. And basically what this name means is the Lord of Armies. The Lord of Armies and the army referred to can be either the angels, it can be the stars, or it can be the nation of Israel. But the point is that the Lord, God is Lord of all. He controls all of them. He is ruler over all. And yet here, the one who controls all, the all-powerful one, the Lord, he is confronting a reluctant nation. He's confronting them about their sin. You know, basically, Haggai here says, your God, your ruler, your king has heard your excuse. That's basically what Haggai is saying here. Now, we notice here also that the Lord refers to the nation as this people. It says there in verse 2, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. The Lord refers to them as this people. He doesn't say my people. He says this people. Basically, this highlights for us God's disappointment in them. You see, they don't deserve to be called his people. They're not acting like his people. They're not behaving as his people. And therefore, the Lord says this people. He shows his disappointment in them. Now, the prophet Jeremiah used a, the same title 
as a term of reproach in Jeremiah chapter 14. Let's just turn over there. Jeremiah chapter 14. Jeremiah 14 and verse 10. It says, Thus saith the Lord unto this people, Thus have they loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet. Therefore the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. Then said the Lord unto me, Pray not for this people, for their good. Jeremiah uses the the term in the same way. It's a term of reproach. That's the idea here. When the Lord refers to them as being this people, it's, it's showing God's disappointments in them. And the reason for this disappointment, the reason the Lord reproaches them here, rebukes them, is because of their excuse. Their excuse for not finishing the work. Now, essentially what their excuse boils down to is procrastination, doesn't it? That's really what it boils down to. They're putting it off until another day. They're procrastinating. You see, they were content to put off the work of the Lord until a more convenient time. They were content to put it off until a time that they felt was better to resume the work. You know, perhaps they claimed that they were waiting for things to improve economically, you know, for things to be more stable so therefore they could do it. Perhaps they were saying they were waiting for opposition to ease, to be removed. And then when those things fell into place, when that time arrived, then they would consider resuming the work of the Lord. But that time, as far as they were concerned, was not yet. And so as we said earlier, their excuse was it's not yet God's time. You know, if it's God's time, surely these things would have happened. But you know, nothing could be further from the truth. It was indeed God's timing. And the evidence was there for them to clearly see that it was God's timing. You know, God had moved a pagan king to free his people from captivity and more than that he'd moved him to commission them to rebuild the temple let's just go to second chronicles chapter 36 and read the passage second chronicles second chronicles chapter 36 verse 22 it says now in the first year of cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is there among you of all his people. The Lord his God be with him and let him go up you know the whole reason they were back in the land is because it was God's perfect timing it was God's time for them to be there and to rebuild the temple St. Chronicles 36 makes it clear that God is the one who had moved Cyrus to free the people God is the one who had moved Cyrus to give them permission to rebuild the temple you know, Cyrus had gone as far as to give them money and material and you know, everything they needed to build the temple. It was clear that it was God's perfect timing. You know, the Jews, these Jews who have returned from exile, 
they would have known these prophecies. They would have known that it was the fulfillment of the words of the prophets. Now Isaiah had said concerning Cyrus that he was the Lord's shepherd commissioned to initiate the rebuilding. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44 and verse 28. It says that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. And in verse 40, uh, chapter 45 as well, verse 13. It says, I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Both passages here, Isaiah talks about Cyrus. Talks about how God is going to move him to set the people free. This was prophesied long before it happened. And God wondrously declared this and God declared it was his perfect timing. Now those prophecies are some of the most incredible prophecies because Cyrus's name is mentioned. Years before it takes place, Cyrus is mentioned by name in the word of God. You know, these Jews, they would have known of these prophecies of Jeremiah and his 70 years. They would have known of Isaiah. They knew the reason they were back in the land is because God had moved Cyrus to free them. You see, the point is that this excuse, the time he's not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built, this excuse was a lame excuse. You know, that really demonstrated that the real reason they'd stopped the work was a lack of faith. A lack of faith in God. A lack of faith in God and His ability to enable them to finish the work, to keep them safe, to provide and enable them to fulfill His word. You know, things got tough and so they quit. There was a lack of faith. You know, some of these ones may have tried to justify this excuse by referring to the Scriptures. You know, looking to the Scriptures for a, a scriptural reason, reason as to why it wasn't yet God's timing. It's been suggested by many commentators that, you know, perhaps some of the scribes may have studied Jeremiah's prophecy concerning 70 years. And decided that the 70 years weren't yet complete. Hence the reason they said the time is not yet come. Just turn with me to Jeremiah 25. <clears throat> oh, sorry, Je Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 and verse 10. <clears throat> it says, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word to you in causing you to return to this place. You know, Jeremiah declared 70 years of captivity. And we can look at Jeremiah 25 as well. It declares the same thing. And perhaps you know, these scribes reasoned that these years were not yet complete. You know, in truth, the, these years were complete. The 70 years was complete. There were three waves of captivity. The first was in 605 BC or thereabouts. The second in 597 BC and the third in 586 BC. And they had returned from exile and laid the foundation of the temple in 536 BC, making it 70 years from the first 
deportation, the first captivity, the first time they were taken away. You know, in Daniel chapter 9, don't turn there, but in Daniel chapter 9, you know, Daniel is praying over these very prophecies in Jeremiah. He's praying about these things. He's been reading the prophecy of Jeremiah. You know, when Daniel prays, he's bold enough to take the earliest date. Daniel is praying that the Lord will answer that 70 years and free the people. And he's taking the first date as the beginning. And he's saying, 70 years is up, Lord, answer the prayer. And God answers. And Israel is set free. You know, these returning Jews, these one who have returned from exile, they're now demonstrating their lack of faith, their unbelief by counting instead from the last wave of captivity, 586 BC. And so to them, as Haggai makes this prophecy here in 520, the 70 years are not yet up. To them, the time has not yet come. You know, in the end, in the end, they would get their 70 years because the temple was finished in 515 BC. Again, 70 years. So if you like, there's two 70 years there. There's 70 years from the beginning of captivity to the time they're freed. There's 70 years from the time the temple is destroyed until it's rebuilt. It's God, isn't it? In the end, they got their 70 years, but it was simply an excuse, wasn't it? It was an excuse born out of a lack of faith. You know, when things became difficult, with opposition coming against the work, instead of trusting in God, and pressing on with what they knew was his work, they looked for excuses. They put off doing the work because it was hard, because it took effort, took money, took resources. They lacked faith, and so the work ceased. So we've seen the excuse of the people. We see, secondly, here now the shame of the people, the shame of the people. Look at me in verse 3. It says, Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? You know, having pointed out their lame excuse, the Lord now with stinging force, if you like, rebukes the people. Basically, the Lord asks them, he says, You know, if it's not time to build my house, How is it that you've found time to build your own houses? That's verse 4. He says, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? You see, to their shame, the people, when they stopped working on the house of the Lord, they didn't just do nothing. They went and concentrated all their efforts on their own houses, on their own comforts. They dedicated their time, their money, their their life to their own houses. Now they found plenty of time, plenty of resources to finish their own houses, but nothing to give to the Lord. Now the selfishness of the people is stressed here by the repeated pronoun. He says, for you, O ye. Basically, for you, you. That's what he says. He's highlighting it's all about you. The selfishness of the people. This was their real problem. Their hearts were set on other things. That was the real problem. That was the reason they hadn't restarted the work. They weren't concerned about it. Their hearts were set upon 
other things. Their hearts were set upon themselves and their own comforts. Their priorities were all wrong. You see, when they first came back into the land, there was great excitement, wasn't there? There was great excitement, great passion to do the work of the Lord and the temple was, the foundations were quickly laid and there's great rejoicing. Read that, Ezra, don't we? Of the rejoicing that took place when the foundations were laid because their priorities was right. You know, their priority was God and serving the Lord. But then when things became tough, they ceased the work and then little by little, the work got forgotten as they became preoccupied with material concerns. You see, the problem here is not that they had finished houses. That's not the problem. But rather that they lived in finished houses while God's house lay in ruins and it didn't bother them. That's the point here. They're living in their finished houses, God's house is in ruins, and they don't care. There's no concern. There's no desire to finish it. Now, this is the complete opposite of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that David, he lived in a cedar house, but he longed to build the temple. Just go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. says, And it came to pass when the king sat in this house, and the Lord had given him rest from around about from his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. You know, David here, He's sitting in his house and he is concerned about the fact that he is living in a finished house and God has a tent. He's concerned about it. David wants to build a temple. Now we know the rest of the story. He's told by God he's not allowed to. Solomon's going to do it instead. But David's heart was in the right place, wasn't it? You know, these returning exiles, their heart was not in the right place. They'd ceased because of opposition, but then they'd just totally forgotten the work of the Lord. They were concerned only with themselves, their own comforts. The temple, God's house, lay in ruins. And what are they doing? They're busy furnishing their own houses. You know, the extent to which their priorities are wrong is highlighted by the fact that they're dwelling in sealed houses. It says, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? That word sealed there basically means panelled. Or Wayne's cotted. That's what it's talking about here. There's paneling on their houses. It's not just that they've finished the house, but they've now paneled the inside, the walls, the, the ceiling. They've beautified their houses. You know, paneling spoke of luxury and wealth. It was associated with the dwellings of the kings, like the palace that was built by King Solomon. Just go back with me to First Kings chapter 7. First Kings chapter 7 and verse 3. It's talking about King Solomon's palace. It says, And it was covered with cedar 
above upon the beams that lay on 45 pillars, 15 in a row. And then verse 7 as well. It says, Then he made a porch for the throne where he might judge, even the porch of judgment. And it was covered with cedar from one side of the floor to the other. That word covered there in those two verses is that same word, sealed. That word panelling. Okay, Solomon's house was panelled. There was this panelling everywhere. Cedar panelling. It spoke of wealth and luxury. And this is what these Jews are now dwelling in. These ones who returned from exile. For 16 years they've been beautifying their houses. They're now dwelling in sealed houses, panelled houses. While God's house lies in ruin. To their shame, they'd found plenty of time, plenty of money, plenty of materials, plenty of drive to finish their own houses and dwell in luxury. But they had no time, no money, no materials, no drive to complete the work of the Lord. You see, their priorities were all wrong. In Ezra chapter uh, chapter 3, Verse 7, we're told that Zerubbabel and Joshua had purchased cedars from Lebanon for the new temple. Just go there. Ezra chapter 3. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 3 and verse 7. It says, They gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon and to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Joshua and Zerubbabel, when they come back in the land, they'd purchased these cedar trees from Lebanon for the temple. What happened to those cedar trees? I read one commentator this week, and it was quite interesting. He suggested, you know, what happened to them? The Jews now living in sealed houses. Is it possible that people have taken that very timber and they've used it to line their own houses? to panel their own houses. You know, perhaps they justified it by saying, well, we can't just get it, let it go to, go to waste. We can't just let it lie there and rot. You know, we can't say for sure that that's what they did with the materials, but, you know, it's not an unreasonable assumption, is it? 16 years has gone by since they purchased that timber. 16 years. It's not an unreasonable assumption to assume they've taken that timber and they've used it for themselves. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8, Malachi accused the people of robbing God. And perhaps that's exactly what they did here. They robbed God. You know, even if they didn't rob God of the materials, they had definitely robbed God of time, money, and resources, hadn't they, themselves. They'd robbed God. They should have been spending their time on the work of the Lord. They should have been giving of themselves their resources to the work of the Lord. But instead, they live for themselves and furnish their houses. You know, some 16 years earlier, the foundations were laid, but there the work stalled. For 16 years, the people ignored the work, offering the excuse it's not God's timing. You know, they weren't prepared to live in houses that weren't finished. But they were quite prepared to let God live in a house that wasn't finished. Not that God dwells in houses made with man by man. But they were quite content to let God's house lie in ruin. 
And sadly, the people's, house, the people's priorities were all wrong. You know, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, makes it clear that we are to put God first, doesn't it? Now, we know the verse, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, this is a wonderful verse that teaches us that we are to put God first in our life, that he is to have the priority. And when he is the priority, what does he do? He blesses us with all those other things we need. He takes care of us. He provides for us. You know, God is not unfaithful. He will take care of those who serve and honor him. You know, while the people in Haggai's day didn't have this verse to refer to, the principle behind Christ's words is written for us in the Old Testament. In Proverbs chapter 3, just, just turn there, Proverbs chapter 3. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with thy substance, and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. It's the same principle, isn't it? Honor God, and God will honor you. Put him first, and God will bless you. You see, the nation, they had lost sight of this principle, hadn't they? They'd lost sight of the priority, which was God. They become so concerned with their own houses, their own selves, they'd forgotten the work of the Lord. You know, beloved, sadly, you know, we can be guilty of the exact same sin, can we not? It's so easy for us to, like the Israelites, fail to put God first in our lives, to forget about the work of the Lord, to forget about serving Him become so focused with our own interests that we give a low priority to God. That God has, you know, second place or third place or fourth place in our life. He's not a priority. Church is not a priority. Because we become so concerned with the cares of this life. We become caught up in materialism. You know, we live in a materialistic society, don't we? And as believers, it's so easy to get caught up in materialism. To get caught up in personal pursuits. We become so consumed by these things that we have no time for God. Now Romans chapter 14 tells us that one day we're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of what we've done. Just turn over there, Romans chapter 14. <clears throat> Romans chapter 14 and verse 10 says, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so that every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let, let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block and occasion to fall in his brother's way. It says there in verse 12 then, so, let, so that every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. There's a day coming where we're going to have to stand before the Lord and we're going to have to give an account of what we've done 
here on earth, what we've done with our time, what we've done with our, our lives, what we've done for him. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 makes it clear that we are going to be rewarded according to the sort of our works. Turn over there, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Final passage this evening, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 12. It says, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. First Corinthians declares that now when we stand before the Lord, we give an account of ourselves, that our works are going to be tried according to what sort they are. And if we've lived for him, then you know, we will be rewarded accordingly. But you know, beloved, if we have wasted our lives panelling our houses, then our works will be burnt up. And there will be nothing left. We receive no reward, as it says there in verse 15, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet, as, yet so as by fire. We'll still be saved, but we'll miss out on the reward. Beloved, there will be no excuse to offer the Lord on that day. There is no excuse, is there? Now, we're not going to be able to stand before God and say, well, I didn't think it was your timing. I didn't think it was your timing, Lord. So I was waiting for a sign. I was waiting for the right time to do something for you. I'm not going to be able to stand before the Lord and say, I didn't have enough money to accomplish anything for you. I'm going to be able to stand before the Lord and say, the opposition was too great. Beloved, there is no excuse for our failure to do the work of the Lord. There is no excuse for our failure to put him first, for our failure to serve him and give him our best. Now, Israel, they offered their excuse to God, and God showed them just how lame that excuse really was. And beloved, likewise, any excuse that we can think of is not an excuse to God. He must come first. He is at the priority in our lives. He should be the priority in our lives. And beloved, if he isn't, then like Israel, we're panelling our houses and neglecting the work of the Lord. As we read earlier in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Christ said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Beloved, that means he must come first in every area of life. He must be the priority. He must have the best of our time, the best of our energy, the best of our money. It belongs to God. And we give it back to Him as King and Lord. And the wonderful reality is that when we put God first, God will bless us abundantly. That's the second half of that verse in Matthew chapter 6, isn't it? Put God first. And all these things shall be added unto you. Let's close in the word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this passage here in Haggai, Lord. Lord, the people, they had indeed lost sight of what was important. Lord, they'd stopped initially because of opposition. 
Lord, a lack of faith. And Lord, over time, they'd forgotten what was important. Become distracted by the cares of this life themselves, their, their own houses, Lord. Lord, there is a great lesson there for us as believers today. Lord, I pray you help us to put you first. Lord, help us not to become distracted by the cares of this life, but give you the priority. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. May we bless now as we close in Jesus' name. Amen.